The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. All right. So for this particular episode, no you turning the conversation down the path of pornography. Deal? I'm going to try. This is something <laughs> that I really don't necessarily set out to do purposely. It just kind of happens. Well, people have started to notice we're getting tweets about it. I know we are. And, and it's disturbing because I'm no more into porn than anybody else. It's just that uh, somehow I managed to turn the conversation in that particular direction. I'm finding this rather disturbing. Maybe it's it's maybe something Freudian. Maybe it's something that... Uh, well, it just says something about me. I'm a little worried. Well, there is something to be said for taking the current day technology and applying it to that next generation of titillation, as it were. I, I suppose. Because as we know, pornography generally leads in the technology world. It's why VHS tapes became so popular. Yes, it is. It's why um, streaming video became so popular. See, we've already done it again. Maybe we should just get going. But no, you, that's your fault. That one was your fault. You led me down that path. <laughs> Busted. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Mars needs women. Um, country music doesn't, apparently. We'll help a legendary music programmer extract his cowboy boots from his mouth. The curse of U2. We'll blame Apple and iTunes for launching what has been a terrible year for the world's most successful rock band. And it's horrible. Nikon has gone to the dogs. We'll introduce you to a gadget that's much more than just a GoPro strapped to your pooch. Plus the winner of our Roku 3 streaming media player and the secret to that complex cord in a hard day's night revealed. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. So apparently, country radio needs fewer women? There must have been something in the world. Okay, uh, I've been reading this, and it is a bit of a tempest in a teapot. Now, if you were at all familiar with the way radio was programmed through the 1960s, actually further back, from the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s, it was common, I don't want to say knowledge, but it was common practice that when scheduling music for a radio station, you never scheduled two female vocalists in a row. That was considered to be, in those unenlightened times, a ratings death wish because women they said, don't like to hear other women sing. They would rather hear the big hits from men. So if you put two women together, that was a bad idea. And we have thankfully moved beyond that in most radio formats. But there was this one country consultant, country radio consultant, who says that maybe we should go back to this way of thinking for country radio. And part of the reason he's saying that is because of the nature of country radio in the United States these days. 
country radio is country rock radio now. Tom Petty put it quite eloquently. He says that country radio today is a lot of what we were listening to as the country rock of the early to mid-1970s. And there aren't a lot of women that are engaged in this country rock sound that we have today. Therefore, putting two women who, uh, back-to-back, who may be singing songs that are slightly out of context from the rest of the country sound these days could be a problem. Geeks and Beats writer Amber Healy is quoting him as saying, I play great female records, and we've got some right now. They're just not the lettuce in our salad. The lettuce is Luke Bryan and Blake Shelton, Keith Urban, and artists like that. And then, as if his hole isn't dug deep enough, he adds, the tomatoes of our salad are the females. Yeah, you see, this is all a matter of delivering the message that was, oh, women are hot tomatoes? Oh, oh, okay. What, what is this, 1957? Okay, okay. I see where you're going, dude. She, she says, um, he humbly tells the Washington Post in a later phone interview as this whole guffuffle blew up, I'm the expert here. I'm the one who spent years programming radio. I'm the one who spent years studying music scheduling, and I'm the one who has programmed radio stations. I know what works. Is his name Sepp Blatter? I had a sep bladder once, and antibiotics cleared it right up. <laughs> I know. I every time I, I, I giggle every time I hear his name. <laughs> I I kind of have that right now with my my stalled kidney stone. I got a sep bladder. <laughs> this is the self-crowned radio expert Keith Hill that Amber Healy on GeeksAndBeats.com is uh, warning us about more than anything else. Yeah, listen uh, again. <laughs> You have to listen and think about the overall sound of country music. You have to think about the overall sound of the majority of the music that's being made, which is coming from men, which has got this country rock feel. And there just aren't enough women in that particular musical mindset just yet for them to provide the, you know enough glue when you have two women back to back. See, I, I, I don't get that at all, because I would have assumed that I would have assumed that the misogynistic, um, you know, pickup truck dog and shotgun type would be more than happy to hear um, two female artists back to back because, well, that guy is attracted to a girl, a woman, a female. You would think that you'd want more of the opposite sex, not less. Again, it's all about the sound and texture of the radio station. I'm not defending this, but I'm looking at it from a clinical point of view and the way we used to program radio stations 20, 30 years ago. You never put two females together because they stuck out. Not that not their femaleness necessarily was the thing that stuck out, but the overall texture and feel of the song. It was just not congruent with the majority of the other stuff. And that, I think that's what he's trying to say, but he's saying it really, really badly. And there is, I think, um, a big argument to me, made that we've, we've, we're over this. Uh, we can handle two female vocals in a row on country music. It seems that there is a curse overhanging the band U2. I made a list of all the things that have happened since they returned from hiding with the, with the uh, album Songs of Innocence. Chasing down the days of fear Chasing down a dream before it disappeared Let's uh, talk about this. In September, 
the album came out and they had this horrible blowback from the release of Songs of Innocence through iTunes. I mean, that was just terrible. I actually had a millennial come up to me at work and ask me, how do I get rid of this U2 off my iPod? And I'm like, oh, I can't believe you want to remove the catalog of the most successful rock band in history from your iPod. So, and what's the problem? You have no storage on your iPod? I don't like their music. <sighs> this is coming from a colleague who thinks Nicki Minaj is the height of musicology. Yeah, I, I, I understand. I understand. Bloody kids. <laughs> Get off my lawn. We have the blowback from the release of Songs of Innocence. November, on his way to Germany, Bono's private jet suffered some kind of structural failure. A cargo door fell off. All the luggage fell out. And this was on a uh, flight into Germany. So uh, it was a, an emergency landing. It was not necessarily a, a really good thing, but everybody was fine. So, okay, well, dodged a bullet there. And then once he landed, he got into a bike accident. Well, when he got back to New York, yeah, there was that awful bike accident that uh, resulted in, uh, you know, a skull injury, a serious arm injury, a serious shoulder injury, serious rib injuries. And if you saw last week when Bono was on CBS This Morning, a U2 tour is a blend of both high and low tech. Edge uses these antique amps. It's still valve technology. Yeah. It's exactly the same as it was in the 50s. Yeah. But then there's the mammoth LED screen suspended above the arena floor. We basically have this double-sided screen, but we can also climb into the image. Do you want to come up and see inside? Let's take a look. During their concert, the band climbs into what feels like a giant cage. This will be our home for the next year or so. What's it like performing in here? It's different. It's very different. <laughs> he was uh, part of a feature there. Uh, if you can find it online, watch how carefully he guards his left arm. Mm. He, he really does look like he's in pain. So that was in November. Uh, February, there was the death of a guy named Reverend Jack Heeslip. Now, Jack Heeslip was a member of the U2 family in Dublin. He was at Mount Temple High School, a very important teacher, very inf influential teacher to the young U2. He encouraged them to do their thing in their early years, and he died at the age of 92. So that was a terrible blow to them. On the eve of the start of the Innocence and Experience Tour, Larry Mullen Jr.'s father dies. He was 92. He'd been suffering from uh, a variety of illnesses, but just a couple of days before the show uh, was supposed to, the tour was supposed to kick off in Vancouver. He dies. Uh, May, the very first stage of the Innocence and Experience Tour, the Edge walks off the stage in Vancouver, um, almost, you know, busts up his arm. That very same week, close friend B.B. King dies. And then uh, Dennis Sheehan, U2's longtime tour manager. This guy has been U2's tour manager for 33 years. After a show in Los Angeles, he went back to his hotel room. He died of a cardiac arrest, a heart attack. And uh, so that's that's the latest. So um, that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That's eight things that have befallen you two since September. And the tour has only begun. Who knows what's next? Give me a sense of uh, what the difference is between a band's manager and a band's tour manager. What would Dennis Sheehan have done that would have made him a 33-year veteran of U2's tours? 
He's the guy that makes sure that everything stays on the rails. The uh, the manager tends to stay back in the office handling business that way. But the tour manager is the guy on the road taking care of, you know, making sure that everybody gets to the next gig properly. Everybody gets their hotel rooms. Everybody gets paid. Uh, tour managing is a very, very important business. Time now for the Geeks and Beats update. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. May I update one thing first? Please do, because you're going to leave us on tenterhooks here as to who the winner is of the Roku 3 streaming media player. It's much more important. I uh, managed to go through Tokyo on my way back from Brisbane, Australia, which, by the way, took nearly 50 hours. Uh, and I stopped in Tokyo, and I got a brand new uh, Nika whiskey, which I am drinking right now. Hmm. Nika White. Don't know what it means. It was a white, a red, and a black. And I have a Nika Black from an earlier trip, and it's horrible. But the Nika White is quite smooth. I'm. Uh, I've got the uh, Belvini here, the single oh. malt Scotch, mm-hmm. which is uh, going down a lot more nicely. now that I've learned how to drink Scotch, I went to a bar in Singapore called Bricks. If anybody knows anything about, oh, geez, here's I've done. Is this another humble brag? <laughs> no, what? Oh, go on. No, I just, just okay, because I've inter- uh, I've inadvertently gone down the porn road. Um, oh, here we go. Yeah, because Bricks is a very famous uh, bar in the Grand Hyatt Hotel on uh, Scotts Road in uh, in Singapore, where where you may or may not find. Uh, a ratio of hookers to patrons uh, well exceeding what you could ever imagine. But anyway, the reason I like going to Bricks, <laughs> Jesus, I've done it again, is that they, they have a very nice selection of scotch ranging from Johnny Walker Blue on down, and they have something called Big Rocks, and it's uh, giant round uh, ice cubes that go with your scotch. And it, you know what? I'm addicted to Big Rocks. It really does make a difference. All right. Are you, are you ready now? I'm done. I'm done. The winner of the Roku 3 streaming media player, which was only available to those who were actual interns on the world's worst intern program here on the Geeks and Beats podcast. What makes it the world's worst intern program is you pay us to work on the show and you don't actually do anything to contribute. Uh, It's through Patreon uh, that uh, you contribute a a dollar at least per episode. And uh, for every buck you throw in per show, we throw in a ticket for the possibility of winning this fantastic uh, streaming media player, which has your Netflix and all the other stuff on it. And we are happy to announce that Michelle Coltman, whose middle name is Funk. No. Yep. Cool. Michelle Funk Coltman has uh, won. She threw in $10, which meant she got 10 tickets per episode, which means there was a greater likelihood. Incidentally, there are those who offered more. Thank you very much for doing so. This is fantastic. But uh, she was the one who managed to win. Uh, And uh, so, Michelle, what we'll do is we'll get in touch with you and ensure that we get this fantastic gadget to you. We will have more things to give away in the weeks to come. Did you get the note from the headphone people? I did. Okay. All the way from Scotland. Yes. Because if you're buying headphones from anywhere but Scotland, they're crap. These one, <laughs> these ones are actually pretty good. I got a, another headphone company. I mean, people are now lining up for us to give away stuff. Excellent. Next week, we'll give away something else. Okay, cool. The dog days are over. The dog days are done. The horses are coming, so you better run. Run fast for your mother. Meantime, Geeks and Beats update on uh, the gadget we were looking at last week, 
pet chats for 350 bucks you can mount at your dog's eye level a gadget that allows you to have a two-way conversation with them and hit a button to dispense a treat since then the mother nature network has found a uh, a neat little uh, personal crafted gadget that uh, one particular uh, gr- company put together over at nikon asia they call it hartography mm-hmm. have you heard of this no the world's first dog photographer or photographer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what they did in at uh, Nikon Asia is they uh, attached uh, one of their cameras around the neck of a pooch named Grizzler and attached that to a heart rate monitor on his chest. And every time the dog got excited about something, it snapped a photo. Oh, I have to get this. So, for example, among the photos, a cornered cat underneath a deck chair, three pigeons eating away at some food they've found, a turtle by the waterside, kids playing in a park, and, of course, other dogs. Oh, this is an absolute must for me. Walks are even better now because I can show people what I like, what I saw today, what I did, where I went, what I smelled. Now, I have a funny feeling that they curated which photos we're seeing here, and we will post them on the Geeks and Beats website so you can check it out. Because as as much as the heart rate goes up when we're looking at this other dog, I, I'd bet dollars to donuts most of the photos are of dogs' butts. Yeah, see, you're right. You're going to have to really carefully curate this stuff because <laughs> I, I know the kind of stuff that my dog gets her nose into. And if she gets really excited about it, uh, oh, boy, it would be it would these bad pictures. Yeah. Uh, so uh, hartography.nikon-asia.com is the easy to remember URL uh, that uh, will take you to their website so you can actually see how the entire project came together. You can meet the dog. Um, the, the heart rate on the pooch at about 104 to 105 beats per minute doesn't trigger the, the shutter. It has to be north of 110 or so for it to actually accomplish uh, its goal and so the uh, the little uh, elastic band which has a little gadget on it which transmits the data via bluetooth uh, sends the trigger uh, to the camera every time it, it hits that certain level okay i gotta get one yeah they're using a nikon Coolpix l31 which you know when i think about it i'm amazed anybody sells cameras anymore that are anything less than DSLR, because now that everybody seems to have a smartphone, why would you need a standalone digital camera? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I've got one. I bought one in Korea, Panasonic, a couple of years ago. I never use it because the camera in my phone is so good. Now, I'm not a serious photographer. I think if you're a serious photographer, you want a serious phone. But for the most part, my iPhone camera does a really good job. I, I, I you know, when I was in Australia last week, uh, that's all I had. So, it was very handy when I was going through the uh, the game farm, taking pictures of wombats, Tasmanian devils, and kangaroos. I looked at those photos on your Instagram feed, and it it looked like you were a little bit um, afraid for yourself. No, because quite frankly, you go you go to Australia, and pretty much everything in Australia will kill you. Yes, this is true. Now, the uh, things in this particular game farm that will kill you, like the fifteen foot crocodile, and this weird bird that looks like a raptor right out of Jurassic Park, they will kill you. And a wombat, by the way, as cuddly as they look, they can run at you at forty kilometers an hour, knock you over, and then gnaw at your face. What are they on bath salts? These things are just powerful little bowling balls. <laughs> 
Own one of the craptastic mugs of the world's most popular podcast and support the show. You too can use the power of science to hold liquids, both hot or cold. Visit geeksandbeats.com today. Just finished having a conversation with my neighbor about the movie Tomorrowland. She's got an eight-year-old boy. I've got an eight-year-old girl. It's distinctly possible at some point we're going to have to uh, chaperone the two of them to see this film. What if there was a place? A secret place where nothing was impossible. miraculous place where you could actually change the world but apparently Tomorrowland's second half isn't particularly good and it's been getting very poor reviews and unfortunately that's led to some very disappointing news about another possible high-tech adventure movie being scrapped okay let's talk about Tomorrowland for a second Mm -hmm. um when I went to Disneyland, 1970, I think it was. I was very, very, very young. And it would have been brand new virtually. It pretty much was because one of the things, and I remember this distinctly, one of the things they had on display as an item of the future was a touch-tone dialing phone. <laughs> and there was a clock next to two phones. One was a rotary dial and the other was a touchtone phone. And you were invited to dial your home number on the rotary dial, then on the touchtone phone and see how much quicker and more convenient it will be if you're just using the tones and the buttons. Everything is amazing right now and nobody's happy. Like in my lifetime, the changes in the world have been incredible. When I was a kid, we had a rotary phone. We had a phone that you had to stand next to, and you had to dial it. Yes. You don't don't realize how primitive, you're making sparks (laughs) in a phone, and you actually would hate people with zeros in their numbers, because it was more, like, oh, this guy's got two zeros, screw that guy, why do I want (laughs) to, And then if if they called and you weren't home, the phone would just ring, lonely, by itself. Um, of course, I couldn't figure out where the buttons were on the touchtone phone, so uh, I was a much faster rot- rotary dialer than I was touchtone dialer. But that—that's one of my big—that uh, was one of my big memories of that. And but Tomorrowland, you know, although it still exists, I mean, what you would—the turnover of stuff that you would have to put in there these days would be incredible because of how quickly technology is advancing. Originally, Tomorrowland was inspired by Jules Verne and the idea that it would open us up into the uh, to the space age. It first opened in July seventh, uh, July seventeenth, nineteen fifty five. Uh, that was Disneyland itself, and Tomorrowland was probably one of the biggest elements to it. Um, in nineteen fifty five, nineteen sixty six, that was the original Tomorrowland, and uh, they uh, had several uh, planned attractions cut because they just simply didn't have the money. But uh, it was uh, more or less. A, a, a PR stunt for Monsanto, American Motors, Richfield Oil, and Dutch Boy Paint. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was loaded with product placement. Uh, the phone, for example, was AT&T, and it was very blatant that this was an AT&T thing. Right next to the phones, of course, they had a video phone, which uh, didn't really materialize. Instead, we're doing, well, what has become of the video phone, which is Skype. The problem with the Tomorrowland movie with uh, your uh, George Clooney in it is that apparently it gets very preachy. My George Clooney? 
Oh, come on. Everybody loves the George Clooney. All right, fine. So what what happens towards the end? It just gets very preachy about how we've lost our way. We discussed this in previous episodes, how uh, the Vietnam War and the oil crisis uh, of the 70s turned America away from that bright-eyed, wide-eyed future of the space age and turned us inward and gave us the me generation of the 80s. Oh, and don't forget the Watergate scandal. That was another big one. Exactly. And so we sort of lost our way as far as uh, the, what Tomorrowland had offered. And so the film sort of reminds us of that in a very hard-hitting kind of way. And because the film hasn't done very well, apparently, The Hollywood Reporter is telling us that Disney has decided to pull the plug on Tron 3. No! Yes. No! Oh, that's disappointing. I'm sorry, I don't see the connection. The connection, I suppose, is that the uh, brain trust in Hollywood figures, well, if they won't go for a futuristic movie like Tomorrowland, they won't go for a futuristic movie like Tron 3. No, that's the wrong thinking. Absolutely. I mean, okay. Olivia Wilde was going to return. If that's not a recipe for success, I don't know what is. Tron is, is, is a fantasy virtual reality type movie. Uh, Tomorrowland was some sort of George Clooney preachy thing. It's two different things. That's a raw. You know what? You know what movie Disney should remake? What's that? If you're doing science fiction, hmm. the black hole. You remember that? I, I don't. I never saw it, but I know the film. It's a terrible movie. But now we have an opportunity to do it right. The the Tron sequel, Tron Legacy, grossed $400 million worldwide, and they rebooted that after the film first hit the uh, the silver screen in 1982. There's plenty of opportunity to, to make some cash on this. We, we, we're suffering from some, some really bad science fiction. Um, on my travels across the Pacific and the Indian Ocean, I, I went through almost every movie that was available on the in-flight entertainment system. I, I saw Jupiter Ascending with uh, Mila Kunis. Oh, how was that? Uh, what a mess. It was by the Matrix people. And it had promise, but it turned into a just gigantic mess. Interstellar, don't get me started on Interstellar because there's so many things wrong with Interstellar. Hey, you know what was once right about Interstellar? What? I'm not going to... I'm, I don't know that it's really a spoiler, um, but the original ending did not have a happy ending. Well, it shouldn't have had a happy ending. And that seems to be the sentiment on the internet, is that it was far too convenient the way the film came to a close. Oh, absolutely. After all those decades of this one guy, Michael Caine, trying to figure out this formula, this one girl who gets this mysterious message from her father from a dimension beyond through morse code in a watch suddenly solves everything no 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 terrible ending to the movie terrible movie well apparently so was tomorrowland it only raked in 41 million dollars for disney and uh, it was almost eclipsed by pitch perfect 2 mm, no it's summertime and apparently they're working on another Pitch Perfect movie, which doesn't surprise me because... How it, cheap are these things to make? Well, <laughs> I, I could sit there and watch Anna Kendrick peel an orange for two hours. Well, that's true. One of the things that I learned about traveling through Asia is that there are certain movies that really, really travel well. 
and it's the shoot 'em up high adventure, like like Mad Max, the new Mad Max movie, huge overseas. Anything with comic book characters, huge overseas. So while we here in North America tend to look at these movies, and go, eh, not so bad. In the rest of the world, gigantic. This is why guys like Adam Sandler and Will Ferrell continue to make movies because their films do very well in parts of the world where overt sexuality or uh, certain North American-ness aspects of films don't translate. They won't show up on HBO there and Vision 4 and all the other different uh, cable channels. But for example, one of the big films over in, in, in Asia is, is uh, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Huge. <laughs> Seriously. And that's why these movies keep getting made, because they get such great play overseas. Is it a translation thing? I, I don't know what it is. People just like the uh, the action and, and a certain type of slapstick. It just works really well. I, I think if there's anything that, that helped us dodge a bullet with the canceling of Tron 3, they're going to put Jared Leto in the cast. <sighs> Jared Leto. Yeah, he's one of the most pretentious people I've ever met. No, good, fine. If anything keeps Jared Leto from getting more work, that's good for, that's good for me. You've met Jared Leto? Oh, yes. Is it Leto or Leto? Nah, it doesn't matter. What, what, make, what makes him so uh, difficult to talk to? Well, I'll put it this way. He showed up uh, with uh, two handlers and was wearing a multicolored scarf and fingerless gloves that he picked at most delicately through, through the entire interview. He's uh, in Toronto right now filming Suicide Squad as the Joker. Yeah, yeah. Which explains why my commute home every day has been nothing but grief. Oh, just wait until the Pan Am games start. Just wait, Bunky. Well, yeah. Are we even ready for the Pan Am games here in Toronto? No, I am staying home for those entire three weeks. I'm not going out of my house. I, I'm looking at the IMDb. I didn't know that Jared Leto was in Panic Room in 2002. He was in a bunch of films. He really was. And it's only in the last five years that he's become something of a serious actor. Was that the Dallas Buyers Club that did that for him? Okay, I'm going to give you Dallas Buyers Club. He did a very good job. Cut the cord and go to geeksandbeats.com anytime. You'll get the latest episode and links to the stories the boys are talking about. Geeksandbeats.com. Also available on 8-track and cassette. One of the most iconic guitar chords ever has been deconstructed and solved. It is the opening chord of the Beatles' 1964 hit, A Hard Day's Night. It's been a From the moment we first heard that opening chord, people have been trying to figure out what exactly is being played. Where are the fingers on the fretboard? Is this one guitar or is it two guitars? Was it John alone or was it George alone? Or was it a combination of John and George together? How can it possibly and be a mystery? You'd think that you know, it would be easy to figure that out just by looking back at footage or talking to the recording engineer. Okay, there was no footage. But you hit on it with talking to the recording engineer. A lot of people over the decades have tried to approximate the sound of this chord. And every one of them I've seen, I know, I know now to be wrong. Because Randy Bachman of Bachman Turner Overdrive went to Abbey Road Studios and actually deconstructed everything 
into its constituent parts correctly. This is not an approximation. This is exactly how that chord was made at the beginning of Hard Day's Night. Mystery solved. I got an email from Giles Martin, who's George Martin's son. Charles Martin invites us into the studio. So we go to Abbey Road Studio, and it's like the suite. No one else can get in there. He says to us, I have all the Beatles source tapes. They've all been put in here. What you, in a computer, in Pro Tools. What do you want to hear? I think about it for a while, and I say, well, there's been a lot of argument and speculation, and I know guys have written little books on it. The first chord of Hard Day's Night. What is the first chord? He said, okay, I'll let you hear it. So he put up one track at a time, because when you hear it all at once, it's like, bang, it's like the greatest thing to hear all at once. I heard the first chord. It was George on a 12-string, just like this, and it's an F chord, but you put a G on top, and you put a G on the bottom, and you put a C next to that G. Now, I said, and put on Paul's bass. What, what note was Paul playing? Paul's playing a D on the bass, and John's rhythm guitar was a D chord with a sus4, which means it got a G note on it. So now listen to this. We only did this yesterday, and it just blew me away. One, two, three, four. Isn't that fantastic? Woo! Here we go. One, two, three, four. It's been a hot day's night. Sing along. Meantime. You've got a, uh, a really neat mashup between uh, a Shake It Off and Shake It Out. One of them being Taylor Swift, the other being Florence and the Machine. It's not a mashup in the classical sense. Yeah. Now, this is a woman by the name of Evan Hollins. And what she's done is she's, she's taken the music from both these uh, songs and arranged it herself and uh, created something completely on her own. So uh, she's called it Shake It Oof. Oof. <laughs> And uh, it, just combining the two songs in with, with, with uh, uh, an interesting arrangement um, that brings the two of them together. And she does a really, really good job. You want to have a listen to it? Let's take a listen. Regrets collect like old friends Here to relive our darkest moments I can see no way, I can see no Some things to myself. I like to keep my issues drawn. Cause it's always darkest before the say 
How the Search for Fossil Fuels Ruined Music Forever. This really got my attention from Business Insider. Yeah, every once in a while, we revisit the story of Auto-Tune. Auto-Tune is that software program that allows bad singers to sound like good singers because you can create perfect pitch singing with a few adjustments using this software program. And Andy Hildebrandt, uh, who was at the time uh, working in the oil industry, trying to use the latest in technology to beam down through the crust of our Earth to figure out where the oil actually was using seismic waves, made an awful lot of money doing it, but he just wasn't interested in it. It didn't, it didn't tickle him enough. So in 1990, he launched Antares Audio Technologies when just on a, on a night out with some friends, friends, somebody had said, wouldn't it be great if um, there was some sort of device that could help my wife keep her singing in tune? Yeah. And this, this, this software that probed the earth's crust for oil deposits was the thing that allowed him to do it. And now, did he actually use the software technology for finding oil for this? Or was it just that it made him so much money it allowed him to go off and do what he really wanted? No, it, it's, it's, it was the oil searching thing. This is why I say fossil fuels ruin music, because this particular uh, sonic searcher for oil deposits, uh, the same sort of technology could be applied to audio and tuning people to the right pitch automatically. Oh, I, I see. Here's, here's his quote. Seismic data processing involves the manipulation of acoustic data in relation to a linear time varying unknown system for the purpose of determining and clarifying the influences involved to enhance geologic interpretation. Coincident technologies include correlation, linear predictive coding, synthesis modeling, <gasps> format analysis, and processing integrity to minimize artifacts. This guy must be a blast at dinner parties. Oh, no kidding. Yes. But basically what it does is perform plastic surgery on, on music, and it allows terrible singers or less than perfect singers to become absolutely perfect singers. But are we not all less than perfect singers? This is the point. There's a certain amount of beauty in imperfection. And if you are relying on a machine to make you so perfect, perfect beyond what you are anybody is capable of, you end up with music that is entirely artificial. There, there is not complete beauty and imperfection, my friend. There is a reason why when I go on TV, they give me makeup. Oh, yes, but they don't, they, they, they may give you a little bit of makeup. They may tart you up a little bit, but they, they don't do some sort of Frank Miller uh, uh, video remake of you, do they? Uh, no, no, there is that. And I do decline the eyeliner. Well, did they actually offer you eyeliner? In the early days, yes, they did. Why? Because your eyes were too beady, or, or why? I don't the lights it. are just simply that bright that um, if uh, it, it drowns out my eyelashes. <laughs> really? Yeah, 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 yeah. I've never been. I've done a lot of TV, but I've never been offered eyeliner. Yeah. This was the same. This was the same makeup artist who begged me to let her make me up like a woman. How? <laughs> I, I don't know what to do with that. No, I don't know either. How long do you spend in the chair? Fifteen minutes. Really? Yep. What's your uh, what's your foundation? Uh, I'm uh, NW30. Okay. Is it Mac? Yes, it is. Yeah, Mac Cosmetics. You seem to know an awful lot for a guy who's in the radio business. No, no, no. I mean, I've been, I've had my share of makeup done too. Uh, Mac Cosmetics is the best. I've talked to Robert Smith and uh, Marilyn Manson about uh, cosmetics, and they both say that Mac is absolutely the best because it doesn't melt under hot lights. Auto tune for your face, my friend. See, see. 
Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. No porn. <laughs> no! Except for that bit at the beginning. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.